Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we talk a lot about solar and wind. When you look at all the new power plants that are going into generate electricity in the U.S., they're mostly solar, natural gas, and wind. Now, what about the other power sources like nuclear, like coal, like oil, like hydro? Can these power sources ever really come back? Are they going to be viable again? Or, you know, what changed there? So on this week's show, we're going to look at the feasibility of these older power plants to see what happened and if there is going to be a renaissance of some of these technologies. Now, what's, first of all, what's interesting is the U.S. is quickly shifting its sources of electrical power. Last year, 2016, there were 26 gigawatts of new capacity added in the U.S., so of these 2016 power plant additions, let's just take a quick look at what the percentages were. So according to the Energy Information Administration in the U.S., last year, 2016, 33% of our new power plants were natural gas fired, 30% were wind, 30% were solar. Now, it's important to remember the 30% that was solar didn't include distributed generation. That didn't include any of the solar panels on top of homes and businesses. This is just utility-scale solar. So on that regard, that you got to add another about 10% there. So solar is clearly the biggest. 5% was nuclear. Hydroelectric was 1.2%. Biomass, which was um, is burning trees and, and un, unneeded vegetation, 0.8%. New oil plants... 0.2%, new coal plants, 0.2%, waste heat, which is just, you know, excess heat from industrial processes, 0.1%, and zero for geothermal. So that added up to 26 gigawatts, 100%. Now, historically, when we kind of look back over the last, heck, 100 years or so, most of our power was generated from coal, nuclear, and oil. Now, there was also a lot of geothermal put in, or some, and then and a lot of hydro, these big dams around the country. So the question that I had is, how do these currently operating power plants, nuclear, coal, oil, geothermal, hydro, how do they compete with new solar, wind, and, and natural gas? Are they still viable? So now here's the thing. It's, it's pretty simple. Utilities select their choice of power plants based primarily on economics. I mean, they're tasked and regulated by the public utilities commissions. They're tasked with providing electricity to consumers, homes and businesses and industries at the lowest possible rate. Now, they're also trying to make the biggest possible profit for their stockholders. So there's a little bit of a conflict there because they want to raise rates and they may not necessarily always pick the, the cheapest power plant. They're going to pick the power plant that's going to make the most money for them. But in general, they select the power source based on economics. So it's no surprise that when we look back last year and we look ahead and we look back over the last few years, natural gas, wind, and solar are preferred by utilities because these are the cheapest ways of generating electricity. Natural gas prices have plummeted over the last 10 years, and, and as a result of that cost decline, a lot of the oil and coal plants just no longer economically viable. The same thing's happening with nuclear. We'll get to that in a minute. So the thing is that even though solar, wind, and natural gas have kind of taken over for new power plants, there's, I mean, I don't know offhand what the numbers, there's a huge number of existing power plants out there. So when you kind of look at these existing power plants, it, it's going to take many, many years for wind and solar and to catch up with all of the coal plants that are out there and the natural gas plants and the oil plants and the nuclear plants. But we're getting there fast as costs for solar and wind keep declining. And we're getting there fast as utilities are, are making some decisions based on environmental needs. 
to not even put in as much natural gas, which is pretty darn cost effective. Um, you know, maybe they're using natural gas for, for speakers and for evening generation, but most of the generating capacity that's going in for the daytime, it's wind and solar. Now, one quick way of kind of gauging the economics of these different power plants is looking at their thermal efficiency. Now, thermal efficiency is one thing, and we're going to talk about economic efficiency in a minute. But when you look at the thermal efficiency of power plants, that's the usable kilowatt hours that come out of the plant in terms of energy divided by the heat energy that goes in. So whenever you look at efficiency, it's what you get divided by what goes into the, the generation of that heat. So what happens is in a lot of energy plants, uh, sources, there's a lot of heat that's wasted. So coal has a 33% thermal efficiency. Oil has a 32% efficiency. Nuclear has a 33% efficiency. And that means that you have these, see these big cooling towers. What those cooling towers are doing is they're taking the heat that's in the steam and they're condensing that steam back into water. What happens is that when it condenses, energy is released. You've got to get rid of that heat somehow. So two-thirds of the heat that, that goes into burning coal, oil, and even you know, in terms of fission and nuclear fuel, two-thirds of that is wasted. You can't use it. It just goes into the atmosphere. Natural gas is quite a bit more efficient just because it, it's just a cleaner fuel. It doesn't need to be cleaned up. Natural gas runs at 43% efficiency. Now, the efficiency metric really doesn't apply too much to wind or solar because there's really just you know, no energy investment going in. You're just getting energy out. But efficiency is really important. Now, the other thing that's important when you look at these metrics are the costs of building and maintaining the power plants. So nuclear, in this case, tremendously expensive. When we look at the cost of fuel, coal and natural gas have relatively cheap fuels. Nuclear fuel is relatively cheap, but there's other expenses involved. Now, the, the other thing that's interesting about nuclear is you, you can't just say, okay, we're done with the plant, let's turn, turn it off. You have these like nasty radioactive waste that's there. Even the equipment is incredibly radioactive. So decommissioning the nuclear plants is incredibly expensive. I mean, sometimes these decommissioning costs are, are more than it costs to build a plan to begin with. Now, let's start talking a little bit about nuclear. So you know, there was a, an old quote from Louis Strauss where he said nuclear was going to be too cheap to meter. He didn't really say that, although he was in charge of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1953, what he specifically said was, and this is true, our children will enjoy their home electricity energy too cheap to meter, not specifically talking about nuclear. They're going to travel effortlessly over the seas and under them and through the air. Well, we don't really go that, don't transport that much in submarines, but you know, we are going over the, the air really inexpensively with minimum danger and at great speeds. And we'll experience a lifespan far longer than ours as disease yields and man comes to understand what causes him to age. Now, we're talking about energy here. And he was absolutely right that, that energy is going to improve our lifestyle. But now when we talk about what happens with nuclear, it didn't really create electricity that was too cheap to meter. It's interesting, in looking back over the last you know dozen years or so, or 20 years, there haven't been any new nuclear plants going in until last year, 2016. There's the Watts Bar 2 reactor that went in in Tennessee. It's, they started permitting it in the 70s. They stopped construction in 85. It was finally finished last year. And the last one that was done before that, you know, in, in whatever, you know, 1996, was Watts Bar 1. Now, these are good plants. They're safe plants. But they cost $4.7 billion. This, this Watts Bar 2 plant in Tennessee, probably the last nuclear plant that's going to be built in the U.S. because wind and solar are so much cheaper. And, and the reason why the nuclear is expensive is you've got radioactive wastes and you've got to clean that up. And we don't have any good storage facilities. You have terrorism issues. We have safety. Obviously, everybody remembers Fukushima, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island. I mean, these are disasters that cost tens of billions of dollars and the problems just don't go away. 
We have to reprocess the fuel and deal with nuclear proliferation. The plants take forever to build. There's big upfront costs. There's big operating costs. Exelon closed down their their nuclear plant in Illinois. There's $3.8 billion decommissioning costs for California's Diablo Canyon plant. $3.8 billion to shut the plant down. These things are just too high. So these problems are kind of the nail in the coffin for nuclear power in the U.S. And the final nail in the coffin, I mean, we're just kind of nailing the thing shut, screwing it down, bolting it down, and gluing it. The biggest remaining nuclear power company is Westinghouse Nuclear. And that was bought by Toshiba, which is a big Japanese electronics company. So this Japanese electronics company said, hey, we're going to get into nuclear power. They decided to do that about 10 years ago. They bought Westinghouse Nuclear in, in 2006 for $5.4 billion because they expected a renaissance in nuclear, not in the U.S. only, but all over the world. Now, today, Toshiba's about to write down that entire investment. I think they lost $6.3 billion at Westinghouse Nuclear. So it's, it's, just, it's just not working. <laughs> in full disclosure, it's kind of funny and ironic. Um, but when I graduated from college, I was offered a job at Westinghouse Nuclear back in Pittsburgh when I graduated. But I made the wise decision that fission power wasn't the right way to go, nuclear power, but fusion power was. So you know, I, I put my faith in the fusion power generator that's 93 million miles away. Now, there's lots of reasons for Westinghouse Nuclear's losses, but almost all of them have to do with the expenses of the nuclear cost overruns and delays. And that just means that in the real world, nuclear is too expensive. Now, let's take a look at some of these other historic popular power generating technologies. Now, one, hydro. It's actually quite a bit in the news recently, and I'll, I'll mention why, but... Hydroelectric is the largest source of renewable energy. It provided last year about 6% of the power that was generated in the U.S. Now, these hydroelectric facilities are basically big dams, damming up a big river in a canyon or something like that. And then they've got turbines that are at the bottom of the dams that actually generate a lot of electricity as the water goes through the turbines. Now, the plants are all over the U.S. were big rivers. So in Washington State, in the, the northwest of the U.S., we got a lot of water, we got a lot of canyons, we got a lot of dams. So biggest dams over there, the Grand Coulee Dam, the Chief Joseph Dam, the John Day Dam, they're generating a lot of power. And what's interesting here in California is we sometimes get a lot of power. There's power lines that, that send that power from the Pacific Northwest down to California and east where it's needed. Now, on the East Coast, there's the Niagara Power Plant in New York, obviously Niagara Falls, and they're generating plenty of power over there. You don't even need that much of a dam. It's just a, a waterfall. Um, and then here in the Southwest, we've got the Hoover Dam, which has created Lake Mead, which is the largest reservoir in the U.S. And, you know, I guess lots and lots of people who've been to Las Vegas and they kind of get sick of the casinos or burned out or they actually want to see some daylight, they'll drive down to the Hoover Dam, take a tour. It's just really, really cool. It's, so hydroelectric, it's a great power source. It's inexpensive when it's running, no pollution, lots and lots of potential, but there's a few problems. So the first thing is building new dams basically is terrible for the local environment. I mean, you're basically taking the local environment and you're wiping it out. You're taking uh, canyons, a lot, a lot of land, trees, you know, maybe Indian grounds or, or towns, and you're flooding them with water when you put in that dam. So it is a big environmental problem. It takes forever, really, to kind of go through the permitting for that. So on that basis, 
it's really difficult to find locations for new dams where you can actually build that reservoir. But it is useful when you're talking about those reservoirs to store water. So California really benefited a lot in years past when we were storing water for the use in the summer. And also when we're using the water in the summer, we can use it to generate electricity. So it was kind of a a double win. You'd have water saved in the reservoirs for use in the dry summer, and you'd be able to generate electricity when you need it on those hot summer days. The problem is the drought got in the way of that, so that that didn't really work out too well. But the the dams do provide good baseload power. But in terms of the environmental issues and the size of the dams and the permitting and the work, they're expensive to build. They're time-consuming to build. And as a result, I'm not aware of any really no new big hydropower projects planned in the U.S. There's lots of talk about things to do, but it's not really happening. So another kind of renewable is it's actually technically renewable, is biomass. So biomass is generating electricity from different types of fuel, including forest wastes from clearing and thinning trees, sawmill residues, you know, when they're when the sawmill when they're making making boards and their sawdust coming off. And then even urban landscape trimmings or rural landscape trimmings where they're, you know, maybe cutting down some unused, you know, it's leftover parts of the crop. And they do a lot of this actually in Hawaii where they're actually burning some sugar cane. So these biofuels can be burned and generate power from that. Now, the thing is that the biofuels have widely varying characteristics. I mean, sometimes it's sugarcane, sometimes it's sawdust, sometimes it's it's leaves and grass clippings. And so the fuel handling challenges at these plants are a little bit tricky. So some of these bio plants that burn biomass are co-firing, means that they also use natural gas or, or some other fuel. So you know, they, they want to keep the plant going, they want to keep generating electricity. Um, so they have a, a backup fuel if, you know, there's not enough leaf clippings that day. So they are considered renewable since we can grow more trees and vegetate. So we're actually not burning carbon that was, you know, in oil or, or coal or, or even natural gas. We're, we're burning carbon and then once it's burned, we can actually grow more trees and the carbon dioxide is absorbed. So we still do release the carbon dioxide that's in plants in the atmosphere. So it is in, in some way polluting and it also creates particulates that go into the air. So it's not as clean as solar and wind because solar and wind absolutely zero emissions, but biomass is cleaner. We're not adding to the carbon footprint of the atmosphere when we're burning plants because those plants are basically going to generate carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is going to be recaptured in plants in the future. Now, in terms of locations, most of these biomass plants are in the southern states. But when we look at what the numbers are as far as, you know, what's really being generated, you know, it's it's less than 1% of the power generation. These plants are relatively small just because because biomass is a kind of a bulky fuel. I mean, you need truckloads and truckloads of stuff as opposed to natural gas that just gets piped in in a pipeline. Now, next old fuel source is oil. Now, power plants used to be fueled by heavy bunker oil. This is crude oil that was just very slightly very slightly distilled. So it's kind of thick, and this is what a lot of ships run on too. It's an easy fuel. It's a high-energy-dense fuel. In order to burn it, it has to be vaporized. So they put it into this, and basically it's an oil burner, and heat it up, and it would, it would vaporize it. It's kind of like the carburetor in the car. And then you get some, some flames, and then those flames would be you know, running through some steam tubes, and you generate steam and run a turbine. So oil burners used to be the way to go. It was either oil or coal. Coal is a little bit more difficult to, to process in a continuous basis. So oil was really the first fuel that could be trucked in and piped and then just continuously burn in, in, a, in a boiler without um, you know, a lot of residue. But what happened... In the 80s, and I remember this very clearly because this was part of my job, um, in the 80s, there began to be a shift 
from oil burning, oil burning furnaces, oil burning power plants to natural gas. And one of the projects I had as an engineer after college was putting in dual fuel boilers in power plants. And, you know, the, the power plants were looking, were powered by oil. And, you know, the thing was, hey, the oil price sometimes was cheaper than gas and gas was sometimes cheaper. So if you're going to put in a new power plant, put in a new a burner, you might as well put in something that can burn both fuels. So that's what we did. Now I think what's happened is pretty much these fuels are all natural gas. So the problems with oil is, first of all, it's more expensive to maintain. It's not that clean. You get more pollution and the fuel's more expensive than natural gas. So the power plants, if somebody's going to be looking at putting in a power plant and they want to burn a fuel, they're going to select natural gas. They're not going to select oil. Natural gas is a lot cheaper and a lot more common. Now, next one, we've talked a lot about coal. Now, coal is a very inexpensive fuel. But it's it's not that easy to burn. You've got to truck it, you've got to crush it up, and then you've got to burn it. But the biggest issue with coal is it's not clean. Because when you burn coal, you get smog, you get soot, you get acid rain. It causes, obviously, global warming and toxic air emissions. You've got CO2, nitrous oxides, mercury sometimes is in there. So it's just not a clean fuel because you're basically burning what's almost like a rock. And there's a lot of stuff in the rock other than hydrocarbon. In addition, you get wastes. There's coal ash, there's sludge, and you got to do something with that. Now, from the standpoint of the fuel supply, we have a lot of coal, a lot of coal all over the world, a tremendous amount of coal in the U.S. of different grades. But, you know, it's it's not like you can just drill a hole in the ground and, and pipe this thing out. The, the mining and the transportation and the storing it's disruptive to the environment. It pollutes the land. It pollutes the water. Yeah, the mining doesn't probably pollute the air that much, but it's a problem. So the idea from the standpoint of coal is let's find a way of using coal cleanly, more cleanly. So we can clean it up. And, and there have been successful demonstration plants of uh, basically called clean coal. And it works. I have no doubt about it. I see it. You can get you know almost no emissions from a coal plant. The problem is that cleaning the emissions from a coal plant is very expensive. It takes a lot of energy to clean that that um, the, those emissions out. So at the end of the day, we can have cheap coal, but it's going to have a lot of emissions. It's going to be dirty. Let's forget about the mining side of it. Let's just talk about the emissions. We can have cheap coal or we can have clean coal, but there's no such thing as cheap, clean coal because cleaning up the emissions from coal is expensive from an energy standpoint, and you end up getting much less net energy out of a clean coal plant than you would out of a dirty coal plant. So, or you get much less energy out of what's inherently a clean natural gas plant. And so, you know, quick, another example, the Navajo Generating Station in Arizona just announced plans to close their plant in 2019. Um, it's just because they found it was too expensive. All right, a couple of other fuels, geothermal. There's no new geothermal plants in 2016. Now, it's a great source of steam to run turbines. It also runs at night, but it only works in the areas that are seismically active. You, you know, and one of the biggest areas is the Geysers plant in Sonoma, in Northern California. This is, this is basically on a fault line. And you've got geysers, literally steam coming out of the ground. And you can use that steam to run a power plant. But we can't add a lot of these plants because there's just not a lot of places around the world where you can put it. And also, I kind of think, ironically, you've got to put these power plants in a seismically active area. It's like, that's where it's going to be earthquakes, huh? So not, not the greatest future fuel source. So when we kind of look back at all these future fuel sources. When we look back at all these changing fuel sources, it's technology that's been advancing, and the new technology leads to cheaper 
fuel sources, economic benefits of new generation dictate what we're going to be using in the future. These transitions take a long time. We're talking about a 20-year transition. And the transitions can be accelerated by considerations such as the environment and energy independence. But really, at the end of the day, it's economic factors that dominate these transitions. So right now, solar and wind are the cheapest fuel sources. And that's what's going in most commonly. Obviously, it's economic, followed by natural gas. Now, I expect this trend towards solar and wind to continue pretty aggressively in the foreseeable future. Natural gas is going to be used there for baseload power. But I also expect that some point in the future, solar and wind will also be supplanted by another fuel power source. I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe it's going to be like the Mr. Fusion generator that Doc used in Back to the Future. Who knows? Anyway, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcasts.